With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Robbie Samuels hosts the On the Schmooze podcast. Robbie, tell listeners what to expect from the show. Since 2015, I've interviewed entrepreneurs who overcame challenges to achieve success in their field or industry. Tune in to On the Schmooze to listen as I ask deep questions to elicit untold stories about leadership and networking. And where can people subscribe? Find the show at ontheschmooze.com or on marketingpodcast.net or just search for it wherever you get your podcasts. You heard them. Go subscribe. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question, where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. So hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin. Today, I'm excited to get reacquainted with an old colleague, Dr. Carl Marcy. Dr. Marcy is a leader in the fields of social and consumer neuroscience and serves as the chief medical officer at Cava Capital. Formerly the chief neuroscientist at the Nielsen Company, he's also on the faculty of Harvard Medical School. I've heard of that place. And is a psychiatrist at Massachusetts General Hospital. Dr. Marcy is also the author of Rewired, Protecting Your Brain in the Digital Age. And he joins me today to talk about his book and so much more. Welcome to Uncorking Story, Dr. Marcy. Mike, it's great to see you again. Yeah, good to see you too. And uh, and Carl, I will ask you the same question I ask everybody who uh, sits in, uh, you know, on the screen. I, I, I usually would say sits in the chair across from me, but we are doing this virtually. Um, but Carl, where does your story begin? Yeah, I mean, as, as it relates to the book, uh, it, it really begins uh, about 10 years ago, um, where I was trying to make sense of the two halves of my professional career up to that point. So the first half uh, after I graduated medical school and did my residency training in adult psychiatry, um, I, I was an academic psychiatrist and I was uh, studying the neurobiology of empathy, uh, particularly as it relates to psychotherapy. I became very enamored uh, with psychotherapy uh, as I was going through my training, because if you think about it, uh, here is uh, one person sitting with another once or twice a week at the most these days, uh, and having outcomes that were as powerful as Prozac, right? No laying on of hands, no pill, no surgical intervention, yet people were getting better. And we really didn't have a clue how that was happening. Uh, so having uh, trained at a time uh, when, when neuroimaging was just coming of age, and you know we all grew up with uh, brains on the cover of Time Magazine, and, and I became very enthralled by, uh, by the neurosciences, um, I thought, you know, wouldn't this be kind of cool to, to research and, and, and how could we do it? And so I was literally going around the hospital, wiring up patients and clinicians and measuring their physiologic responses as they were doing therapy. My big idea was that it wasn't about one person. It was a dyad. It, it's about one brain understanding the other. And the other 
nice thing about psychotherapy is it's a pretty much a one-way track. It, it's the, the therapist really trying to understand the patient, not the other way around. So I was uh, doing all that and having some fun. And, and along the way, um, someone uh, said I should go over to the MIT Media Lab. And uh, they were uh, essentially building the first generation of what we now call wearable devices. Uh, so they were taking handheld computers and putting sensors in them and measuring heart rate. And, and they had Bluetooth sensors and voice activators and then literally wiring it into a vest and walking around. I was like, oh my gosh, you have a multi-sensing wearable computer platform. That's amazing. Uh, what are you doing with it? And they're like, we're not sure what to do with it. I said, well, I have some ideas. And then that led me to uh, some, uh, an entrepreneurial path. And, uh, and you and I met when I was doing Interscope, which was later bought by Nielsen, uh, which was a pioneer in, in consumer neuroscience. So the application of neuroscience tools and principles to media marketing questions. Um, and those two things didn't really make sense at some level, you know, empathy and, and, and media marketing. And, you know, and sometimes I would say, oh, well, maybe it's, we're understanding consumers empathy with products, right? But that, that you know, it, 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 it fell flat. <laughs> it's a little, it's a stretch. It's, it's a, a bit stretch. of a stretch, right? Uh, well, then one day, uh, and I tell this story in, in the book, um, I was in the Time Warner uh, Media Center uh, and lab, and we were doing a study, uh, this is around 2011, and uh, it, was, it was for Turner Broadcasting, and we had randomized young women, so 18 to 21, who were heavy users of social media, uh, and they brought their, their smartphones with them, and they were getting paid $150 to watch TV. Uh, and we were tracking their, their eye movements and, and some other behavioral things. Uh, and it was all captured on, on closed circuit TV. And I was sitting in this room because there was some, some, you know, the client was there. Uh, and we had randomized these young women into one of two conditions. Basically, you know, watch like you would at home with your, with your smartphone. And the other condition, like, oh, we're going to take your phone away for an hour. Just watch, you know, without it. And we didn't realize that that is essentially an early deprivation study. Yeah. So we're taking away this thing that these young women had a very powerful attachment to. And I'm sitting there watching the first one and who doesn't have her phone and she's sort of fidgeting, right? And she's sort of bouncing around. I was like, she doesn't look very good. I was like, is she having a panic attack? <laughs> she anxious. Occasionally people would show up doing drugs or high on something. Um, and, and I was like, I, I think I, I turned to the executive and I said, I don't think she's going to make it. And less than 10 minutes in, she gets up, bolts out of the room, grabs her phone, and leaves without payment. I was like, huh. So I go out and I, you know, is any unusual activity before, you know, the, the, the session? No, no, no. Um, nothing, nothing strange. No, no. Next, next young woman comes into that same group, same thing. Next one, same thing. We lost a third of these young women. And the other group, 100% of them finished yeah. and, got, and got paid. And, and all I could think of was uh, college undergraduate psychology classes and, and Skinner boxes. Remember the, the <laughs> yeah. study, right? Remember Absolutely. those studies that they put the rat or the mouse in the, in the box and they give them, you know, water and then it turns into cocaine and they yep. start licking the cocaine instead of the water. And then you take away the cocaine and they start going in circles and having withdrawal. Yeah, and, it's, and it was it's that like moment. the issue with dopamine, right? It's uh, that's right. So they yeah. get hooked. They get the, their brains get hooked. Uh, the dopamine gets released. It becomes rewarding. They develop the habit, which turns into an addiction. You take away the addicting thing. In, in this case, cocaine for rats, smartphones for young women, and and they show signs of withdrawal. And it's physical signs, right? They, you know, heart rate goes up. They start to get agitated, uh, and 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 they very powerfully uh, want to go and get more. And that was the first moment where I was like whoa, this is not a habit. This looked to me like addiction. And maybe, maybe this was something that I could take my, my psychiatry lens 
and apply uh, uh, to media marketing. Uh, and and maybe, maybe, maybe there was a book there. Yeah. And it sounds like you could be ruffling some feathers there though, right? So the people who are hiring you to, to, to do commercial kind of work, um, they may not be so into this, these findings of yours. Is, is that fair to say, or am I thinking about that incorrectly? Well, <laughs> it, it's a good point. Um, uh, I have since left the field, so I'm now uh, a healthcare entrepreneur. Um, and when I started writing the book, I, I was a senior executive at Nielsen. Uh, and I had to be very careful, right? Because, you know, the Facebooks uh, and Googles and, and Twitters of the world were, were our clients. Um, so if you read the book carefully, you know, I, I don't, you know, I say, look, first of all, I'm not against technology uh, and I'm not even against social media. I, what I'm against is us not having a digital literacy and teaching young people how to use these very powerful tools in a way that is uh, proactive and helpful to society rather than reactive and, and destructive to society. And I, I think that's sort of where we are at a little bit today. Um, but you'll see, I'm not, I'm not openly against any, any one technology uh, or, or company. What's well, like anything, things in moderation are fine. Um, but I see, you know, I see my kids. So my kids, I have three 20 year olds at home and they grew up, you know, they're part of this generation that grew up like with screens always around them. Um, and they are always, you know, whether it's TikTok, whether it's Snapchat, um, not so much Facebook, uh, because, right. you know, that's for old people. The, yeah, that's, that's for the, the 49 plus crowd that I kind of fit into. Yeah. But um, they, uh, you know, they're, they're always on it. And, you know, it's like, how many likes did I get? You know, can you like this for me? I got to keep my streak going. Like there is this like little addictive behavior in there that, um, you know, it is concerning to me, but, but I also look at my, my wife who will sit on the couch and watch TV. And she always like the women in your study always has her phone in her hand, doesn't even know that she's not paying attention to the big screen in the room and that she's scrolling through social media until I call her out on it. And then she gets mad at me, but I'm like, yep. what are we doing here? Or are we looking at, you know, so-and-so's fake life on Facebook or are we, you know, watching SVU? Well, and, and, you know, the, the television is, as you know, historically uh, was, was a technology that was a uniter. It brought people into one room. It brought people to, to watch a, a common uh, set of news, a, a common entertainment. Uh, you know, when I was uh, in, in elementary school, you, you, I couldn't go to school on Friday if I hadn't watched Cheers, right? right. You know, because you'd be an outcast. Yeah. Um, so, so I, look, no one is immune. And uh, in the book, I talk about um, Detroit uh, when the Model T was first introduced in, in 1908. And, you know, Detroit became a test bed for this new technology, the automobile, uh, at, at scale. Uh, and uh, it was a disaster. Uh, people were getting killed. There were no rules to the road. Children were getting run over playing in the streets. Farmers were going crazy with these noisy things going through their, their cornfields. And it was terrible. And it took 10 years, 10 years before the first stop sign was, was put in. And another three years before the stoplight was even invented. You know, and then we go on this, you know, 100 year journey uh, or so, um, a bit more, where everything got better, right? We got airbags, we got better lights, better signage, highway lights, everything was towards safety, safety, safety. Um, until ironically, 2016, uh, when the death per mile in this country actually started to tick up for the first time in 40 years. And, and the, uh, you know, all of the data concludes, it's the use of this thing while driving, uh, that, that is literally killing people 
right? So, you know, Houston, we have a problem, right? So we, we don't let kids drive a car until, you know, they're 16 years old, they have to pass a test, right? They have to have a chaperone for the first several months um, and they have to qualify for a license. Uh, and even then there's a lot of rules you have to follow. Why are we giving them a supercomputer in their pocket, untethered uh, and, and to the, with the connection to the entire internet uh, without any, any guidepost or, 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 or training or rules? That's my concern. Yeah. So what do we do about it? Well, uh, I think, you know, when I first started out doing this, sort of like you said, um, I was thinking that this would, this book would be as much about awareness as it was about, you know, solving the problem. So uh, the first two uh, sections of the book are, are about awareness. Um, I, I don't feel like awareness is the issue now. Every, everywhere I go, they go right to what do we do? What do we do? Uh, what do we do? Right. So um uh, the, the final third of the book uh, is dedicated to 10 recommendations that are uh, scientifically and empirically supported uh, to, to really do one thing, uh, and that is to support the health of our brain and our, uh, in general and our prefrontal cortex in particular. So, uh, so if you indulge me, we'll talk a little bit about the prefrontal cortex. Oh, I, you know what? I was thinking about it this morning while I was in the shower. <laughs> um, you know, I was washing, you know, the outside of my prefrontal cortex, um, but yeah, let's, 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 let's get dirty with it. So, uh, you know, the human brain, uh, 60 to 80 billion neurons, each one making between 10 and 20,000 connections. Uh, it's thought to be one of the most complex entities in the known universe. And what's really cool is we all have one. Uh, and I make, and, and uh, most of us use it, but and, and occasionally, there are some. occasionally we use it. Um, and we could talk about whether as a society we're getting smarter or dumber, but, um, you know, and I don't make a lot of guarantees in life, but I guarantee the brain your listeners start this podcast with and finish with, uh, it's not the same brain. Uh, but, but key to the story and what I, you know, if, if people take one bit of, uh, neuroanatomy, uh, away from them. And I really try to make the book very accessible for a common audience. I don't get into too much technical details, but, but the prefrontal cortex, as you pointed out, is it's right behind our forehead and our eye sockets. Um, and it is the uh, largest and most interconnected part of the brain. It, uh, although uh, it is not um, uh, an, an area that people think a lot about, um, it consumes a lot of calories. And there are uh, evolutionary psychologists who believe um, it is the part of the brain that differentiates us uh, from other uh, hominids, right? So the reason why you know we killed off Neanderthals uh, after we you know hung out and had sex with them for a while, um, you know, is because we had a bigger prefrontal cortex, um, and and that made us very social, right? So the prefrontal cortex, among many things, it, uh, I, I describe it in the book as the uh, uh, the conductor in our personal symphonies um, uh, really is is what allows us to engage with the world, right? I mean, you you are uh, uh, when you're not doing podcasts, uh, moderating uh, and and doing focus groups uh, with with real consumers, and you're talking to them and you're trying to engage them in a conversation, right? And the three components of engagement are they have to pay attention. Right, you have to get them to uh, emotionally uh, respond to, to some portion of your question or the conversation for them to hold their attention, um, and then you know you're you're going to ultimately get them to recall memories uh, or lay down new memories uh, that ultimately would will will change their behaviors. You know, and that that is a a definition of engagement, and that's what the prefrontal cortex really helps us do and orchestrate. So imagine a world where the prefrontal cortex is under threat. Right. So 
I talk about the three Ds, right? Remember we're more distracted, divided, and depressed. Uh, you know, that that's sort of an understatement. Um, but but if we're, you know, go in a world where, you know, when you and I grew up, probably the average age of routine media consumption was four years. You know, now exposure is at four months and routine use is nine months, so less than a year old. Uh, we know from Nielsen data, if you go back to 2002, the average American adult consumed, you know, roughly 40 hours a week of media, a lot of media, you know, flash forward 20 years, you know, it's double, double, how do we, how do we do 11, 12 hours a day consuming media? Well, there's two ways we do that. One, uh, we have found time because we now have media in our pockets, it goes everywhere we go. And the second way, as you were talking about your wife, you're saying they're consuming two media devices at the same time. Right? The TV's on and she's on her phone. She's media multitasking. And what do we know from the media tasking literature? Right? We know two things over and over and over again. We find the same thing. Error rate goes up, processing speed goes down. But we all do it. Why? Well, it's a little brain trick. Right? When we're doing two things at once, we are working harder. And typically when we work harder, we are more productive. But in this case, we're not, we're less. Um, so you, so you get into this world where the, and the prefrontal cortex is mediating all this stuff, right? We know from brain imaging studies, when people are trying to do two things at once, the prefrontal cortex lights up harder because it's really, it, it becomes a bottleneck. It's trying to send too much information into too many channels, which is why we ultimately slow down and, and make mistakes. So the recommendations are really around how, how do you, uh, how do you protect, uh, your brain and how do you protect your prefrontal cortex? Um, and they run the gamut from, uh, you know, Number one, embrace monotasking over multitasking, particularly if you want to be productive, right? Now, I'm not saying, you know, folding the laundry and listening to music is going to hurt your prefrontal cortex. Um, but if you're a kid and you're uh, doing your homework and you have a social media app open, that's going to hurt your grades. Uh, and if you do that enough, you're actually going to, and we know this, uh, you're going to have less uh, gray and white matter in your brain. And, and you're, you're gonna have less connectivity between different parts of your brain. And that's gonna impact not only your grades, uh, it's gonna impact, uh, impact your ability to function socially. And, and, and the big, uh, I think the big, one of the big ideas in the book is that this is gonna contribute in significant ways to what we're already seeing, which is an epidemic of mental illness in, in adolescence, right? Everything from ADHD to depression, to anxiety, tragically suicide are going up, you know, double digit rates uh, in a way that's overwhelming our system. Uh, and I think, you know, all this, all this media consumption is playing a role. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, I had a plot point in one of my books um, about um, sort of addict, addictive behavior around social media and how it could lead to increased anxiety and depression in some, in some kids. Um, and so th that's something that's been sort of on my mind, um, and, and more, more so than just as a plot point, I mean, also as a dad, um, you know, just seeing, seeing my kids and now thankfully they're, they're all well adjusted. They all do very well in college, but, um, yeah, I were, I worried. I mean, absolutely. My son would do homework all night long, um, with his friend Ava on FaceTime, like all night and they, he'd be talking to her and then he'd be doing homework and then they'd be doing whatever else they're doing on social media. Um, and on one hand, I'm like, gosh, he could really multitask. I could never do that when I was his age. Then I'm thinking to myself, how the hell is he doing that? Like, right. uh, he, he yeah. shouldn't be able to do that. That's not like a superpower, you know, he, he should have. Well, let, let, let's talk about that. And then let's talk about social media, right? So in terms of multitasking, again, right, we, we just know. Uh, and one of my favorite uh, studies goes back, uh, uh, you know, 10 years. And, and the authors of the study um, were just, they were convinced 
they were convinced that a, a population of kids who grew up multitasking, they must be good at something, right? And, and that involves multitasking. So they gave them all these different multitasks and they were terrible. They're like, they failed at everything. And it's just like this assumption that if you do it your entire life, right? Just because there's so many things, if you do your entire life, you get better at. This is just one of them that we, you know, we really don't uh, excel at. Um, so, so imagine a world where, you know, let's say your son, look, you're, you're a bright guy. And I'm sure your kids are very bright, um, but, you know, knock off 10 IQ points. Okay, fine, right? They'll survive. They'll get through college. They're going to, you know, they're going to live a, a decent life. But do that across an entire population, right? And, and certainly do that, you know, for that average kid who now is a little bit below average or the below average kid who is even more below average. Um, factor in uh, data that, that's pretty compelling that at the lower end of the socioeconomic scale, um, these kids are even more vulnerable because parents are using media as, 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 a, as a babysitter because they can't afford childcare. Um, and, and then adverse life events and other things, you know, the brain, the brain just can't handle it. And you end up with the epidemic we have. Now, in terms of social media itself, um, you know, we now know from people leaving Facebook, right, who famously talked to journalists at the Wall Street Journal, um, that, you know, there was, there was internal data showing that in particular young women were vulnerable to eating disorders uh, and, and other bad things. Um, and that I don't think should surprise anybody, uh, a company that large with that many users, uh, there's, there's going to be issues. Um, I, I think that um, what, what I try to talk about in the book and I try to tell people about is like, look, you know, for, for a segment of the population, you know, the exchanging uh, news uh, and information to people who are a long distance away, who you already have a really good connection with, um, is a great idea. And in fact, there's some data showing if, if you use it in a particular way, it actually helps with self-esteem uh, and, and makes you feel better in the moment. Um, but what I remind people is, you know, if you think about social media as a platform, right, the promise of sharing information and connecting with other people should be one of the best things for creatures who are social by nature and whose prefrontal cortex has evolved to allow us to connect to people. But the one thing that I point out is that you look at all the data on social media, the one consistent finding is it does not increase well-being. In fact, most studies show that it decreases it somewhat. And that's controversial. So most of the controversial is like, does it make us depressed? Does it decrease our well-being? I'm like, yeah, we can split hairs on that and we can talk about that. But no one talks about the fact that it does not increase well-being. It does, but why, so why are we doing it? Why are we spending so much time on this thing? Well, it's because what you said earlier, right? You're sitting there and we know from neuroimaging studies uh, that kids get a, a little dopamine hit uh, when they see a lot of likes, number one. And number two, when they share information about themselves, right? And what does social media do? It gives you instant feedback and you're constantly sharing about yourself. So, mm -hmm. so I, you know, I feel like uh, we talk about the uh, social media seesaw. On the one hand, it does some good things. On the other hand, you know, be careful. Well, I think the, the danger that I see, because um, I know many people in bad marriages who on social media will make it seem like, you know, they are Ozzy and Harriet. You know, like, oh, my my husband is the greatest thing since sliced bread. And meanwhile, I know, you know, she's having an affair with, you know, the pool guy. You know, it's, that's maybe a fictitious example. Maybe yeah, but... it's not. But 
I mean, highly curated. We, we see that happening. <laughs> we see that happening, and it's like I know that people are not living like authentic lives. Many people, not everybody, but authentic lives, whether it's through pictures on Instagram or, or Facebook and stuff like that. So then you're you're creating this like false, you know, false expectations of what life is like, especially for teens seeing adults do this stuff, and they're like, oh my goodness, my life isn't like this. What's wrong with me? And maybe that's where like increased anxiety comes from. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not an expert. No, I, it's kind of what I see. It's a, it's a great example. So one of the recommendations in the book is, is to be careful about your self-identity, right? And so uh, there's, there's a field of psychology called social identity theory, uh, which basically says, uh, to quote you know, Shakespeare, uh, all the world is a stage and all the men and women are actors in it, right? And so there's this notion, and we're doing it right now, we have an audience right here, and you and I are, you know, putting forward a, a version of ourselves, a professional version of ourselves uh, as authors and, and, and thought leaders, uh, and we're performing, um, you know, and, and we're trying to be authentic with each other, but, you know, we're not going to tell our deep, dark secrets uh, on a recorded uh, podcast, right? Um, we save that for a select few of people who are in the backstage of our lives, right? And so this, this is, you know, theories that developed in the 50s um, that basically say, look, we're, we're, we're all constantly putting out a, a version of ourselves. Well, now imagine a world where you're growing up with social media and not one social media platform, but, you know, what? five, six, I mean, how many do your kids use routinely? More than one, right? Sure. And, and you probably have, they probably have a different version of themselves on each one of them. And then you're spending hours and hours a day curating that. Like, like where's the real you in that, right? And, and Eric Erickson, the famous developmental psychologist said about adolescence, there's only two questions that matter. You know, who am I and how do I fit in? Uh, and and it's, those are two really hard questions to answer when you're constantly presenting a version of yourself that's different every five minutes on a different platform and then turning it off and not knowing, you know, how to, how to handle yourself, how to handle your emotions. I mean, look, one, one of the things I, I uh, took away from some of the research we did at, at Interscope where we were, you know, we were measuring people's physiologic responses as they consume media, in some cases in their, in their real world, uh, is that people, uh, particularly when they're alone, you know, use media as a mood regulator. Right. You know, we get anxious and we just pick something up. I'll play a game or, you know, I'm a fear of missing out. Right. I'm going to go and look on my feed and and all these other things. And and, you know, when it's an arm's reach away, uh, why why wouldn't we? Right. I worry about my kids who are younger than yours. Right. I've got uh, my oldest is nine and twins who are six. And the, the, the stuff that comes out of their mouth. Right. You know, the nine year old talks like a 13 year old and the six year old talks like a nine year old. You know, and, and we're pretty good at home, right? I mean, I literally wrote the book, but but they're but they're they're going to school with kids who maybe are watching a little more YouTube or doing other stuff, but they are exposed to so many influences today that it that it's hard to keep up. So, you know, and all that gets amplified on social media. So social media amplifies the the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah, and the other, the other thing I think about and I I was thinking uh, I was learning a lot about boundaries last week at this retreat I went to out in in wine country of all places, where we were not allowed to drink any wine. Mm, that hurts. Um, which is, you know, a little painful when you can see vineyards all around you. And uh, no, that's a dry event. Um, but, you know, you, I was learning about boundaries, you know, as part of like personal development stuff. And, you know, there are, there are five boundaries they were teaching us. There's your inner boundary, which is 
you know, your kind of reserve for your higher power, if you believe in that sort of thing, because no human could be in your inner boundary because it's unconditional love. And then there's your, your goods, right? Your people who have your relationships with close relationships, usually your spouses are in there, but not your kids because your kids are your semis. You don't want to be too open with them. And then you have your, your outers, which are acquaintances, or you have your acquaintances and then your outers, people who you don't have nothing to do with. But on social media, people treat everybody because they do, we do spill so much of our lives, personal details. You know, we treat everybody as if they're in our good boundary telling people things, strangers things that they, they should not know about us, that they shouldn't need to know about us. Yep. So it's also like, it's, it's hard. Sharing to, intimate to moments, boundaries. right? Yeah. Sharing intimate pictures and photographs. And like you said, also putting on a happy face that everything's got to be, you know, the, the, the best time ever all the time. Right. <laughs> right. You know, and it's, it's not, it's not reality uh, and it's not sustainable. I yeah. think that's right. So I have, need to know, uh, when you were in med school, did you know you wanted to go into psychiatry and neuroscience or was it kind of, a, were you open to other career paths? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. So um, I uh, fell into psychology 101 as an undergrad. I was pre-med. Uh, I was in New York at Columbia University and uh, was on the track team, very busy and um, was trying to think of, you know, what, what, what was I going to major in? And you know, one of the seniors was like, oh, you should take, you know, Psych 101. And, and Columbia at the time had a very good psychology department. And yeah. I just fell in love with it. And I was like, oh, this is great. And then I uh, was very fortunate to <clears throat> uh, get a scholarship to Oxford and uh, studied more psychology, more experimental psychology and philosophy of science, philosophy of mind. Um, so there was, a, there was a pretty good basis going into med school there. Um, but when I entered medical school, I was thinking more like uh, internal medicine, primary care, and I would, I would think psychologically uh, un until we got to the, the, the neuro block in second year and we started doing brain slicing and I started looking at brain anatomy in a, in a way that was so much more detailed and focused than anything I had done as an undergraduate and I just fell in love with the brain. And when you're in love with the brain in med school, you have three choices, right? Everything's three. Uh, you know, you could be uh, you could be a neurosurgeon, a neurologist, or a psychiatrist, right? So neurosurgeons basically just do surgery, uh, and they don't really talk to people. Uh, and I like to talk to people, so that's out. Uh, and then neurologists, what I learned, uh, really only treat things they can see. And I was pretty sure there was stuff going on in the brain that that we couldn't see. Uh, so that really left uh, psychiatry and. Uh, what I also liked about uh, psychiatry was that there were no two psychiatrists who really practiced the same way because it it's such a big field and you can go in so many different directions. And, and clearly I've had an atypical path, um, but, uh, but, but you can, uh, you know, and, and, and all that circling around has landed me, you know, where I'm sitting today at a, a company called OM1, which is a big healthcare data uh, company that um, is literally using the same data science approaches that, that Google and Facebook use uh, to sell us advertising. Uh, in this case now to uh, try and work with healthcare data um, to get better outcomes, right? So, so we're imagining a world where you come in to, to see your physician and they put, you know, Mike Carlin in and some parameters, and then it compares you to, you know, a hundred thousand or a million people like you and says, oh, Mike's going to do better with, with this treatment at this time, at this dose, uh, and it saves time, money, and, and leads us to a better place. That's what technology should do in my yeah. mind. It should empower us and make us better. Yeah. Not, not manipulate us to, uh, to buy a certain thing or think a certain way, which I think is even scarier. Exactly.
Um, well, very cool. Well, I do have some fun questions for us. Go uh, for it. Because this is always, you know, I always like to say that Uncorking Story is about the story behind the story, which is your personal story. But so I want to get to know you a little bit more than I already do. Sure. First off is, uh, what were some of your favorite TV shows when you were growing up? Well, we already mentioned Cheers uh, a moment ago, uh, which, you know, really was fantastic. I also uh, uh, was uh, enamored by MASH. Um, you know, I loved Alan Alda and, and the characters in that story and how, uh, you know, probably that's planted some seeds uh, for medicine in my brain. Because um, this is back when they were reruns and I would watch, you know, yeah. two back-to-back episodes every night after I did my homework. Um you know, th- those were some some uh, early uh, influences. I'm also uh, will admit, uh, cartoon wise, um, you know, I was a big fan of Scooby Doo, and you know that show is still running, and my kids now Absolutely. watch the latest versions, and it's still good. It's amazing, and they've managed to to modernize it. Um, and the other one that uh, has been wonderfully evolved uh, are the Looney Tunes. Uh, you know, I grew up Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, and Foghorn Leghorn, and they were all separate category uh, characters and separate, you know. 10 minute shows now they all live in the same town and and live next to each other and hang out and it, it's it's so much fun to watch yeah um i have to talk about mash for a minute because sure. my my grandfather was a surgeon field surgeon in world war ii and uh growing up we used to watch and he was a, a fauci i don't know if i should admit that or not but <laughs> actually we called him fossey that's the way we pronounced it as as kids not fauci but yeah. it's a great Consider him a great uncle to the, the the Fauci. You either love or hate, depending on what side of the aisle you're on. But yes, yes. We think he's all right. Yeah. Um, well, I'm a fan. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so I, you, my grandfather Peter, we used to watch Mash. He loved it, um, you know, and he would laugh at it, and um, I would love to watch him laugh. But uh, you know, there was there was like um, there was a depth to that show too. It wasn't. It, just, it got you know, very serious at times. And use and whenever like I think it was the psychiatrist they would bring in the guy with the muscle. Oh yeah, he was great. Yeah, he was great. Whenever he would come on, you knew it was going to be like a deep episode. Like some some. <laughs> and he was good down. too. He was he was very insightful, and yeah. whoever did the the background for him. Yeah. Uh, and again, could, I never thought about it till now. Could have been an early influence on me, right? Yeah. But that was one of those shows where I mean, for for years it was you know the most watched TV show. You know, and then there's the Super Bowl, like the the, the last episode of Mash. It was 100 million viewers, right? Jeez. And then we don't, but we don't have that anymore because no. no one watches live TV anymore. You know, so that group watching, you know, that mass group watching, where you know you're showing up on Friday morning to talk about Cheers or Seinfeld or whatever other must see TV there was back then. We don't do that anymore. Well, you know? I'll tell you, uh, yeah. I was I was giving a talk this a couple of years ago, pre-pandemic. Um, and it was in New York. It was a, a NYU undergraduate class uh, that uh, Betsy Frank actually was was teaching, and she invited me to give a guest lecture. And we were talking, and um, you know, I was talking about. Uh, I, I kept referencing in, in the early part of the talk cable television, cable television. And at the end, in the Q and A, this what, what's cable television? I was like, it's like you're serious, right? I was like, does anyone know what broadcast television is? Blank stares, right? I was like, does anyone know what a television is? There was a little bit of hesitancy, like, you mean the big screen on the wall? I was like, yeah, the big screen on the wall. I was like, oh, my God. And I realized I had to literally describe scheduled appointment TV to these kids. I was like, you know, when I was a kid, we got a TV guide in the mail, right? It was paper, and it was the schedule for the week. And we would study it to figure out when things were going to air because there was no internet. Right. And, you know, when I was a little kid, there was only three channels. Um <laughs> And, and I was just trying to describe how it's like, they're like, wait, so you could only watch, you know, cartoons on Saturday mornings. Like, yep. 
because it's, there was no Nickelodeon and that's what cable did. So we started with broadcast television and there was only a handful of, of networks and they had captivated audiences. And then cable came along and began to fragment those audiences into uh, segments uh, and, and catering to people's needs. And then the internet came along and put all that on steroids, as you know. So yeah. now, you know, everybody can kind of, you know, titillate themselves by themselves uh, with, with any media they want. And this is why I talk about media as a mood regulator, right? So we would watch media, you know, as a small family or group or even one-on-one and then go talk about it, you know, the next day at school or at the water cooler. Now, you know, oh yeah, did you binge watch that thing? Yeah, it was pretty good. Oh, maybe I should watch it someday. And that's the sum total of the conversation. Yeah. It's sad. It is sad. It is sad, but, uh, you know, time marches on, um, for whom the bell tolls. Uh, so we talked about TV. What about music growing up? What did you like to listen to? Who are you listening to? Uh, so I, I'm uh, a bit of a progressive rock fan. Uh, was was heavily influenced by the British invasion. My I had older brothers, so you know we grew up uh, listening to you know Elton John and David Bowie and Genesis and uh, Rolling Stones and things like that. And um, you know, and I I still enjoy that that kind of music. Uh, I remember uh, some years ago. Uh, getting into the neuroscience of music and how it just lights up like your whole brain. And, and there's this like memory bump in adolescence as your brain is going through this, this rewiring uh, that every adolescent does. And, and um, it's thought that, you know, music can play a, a really critical role developmentally in terms of your memories. And, and so people kind of get stuck. So you got to be careful what you listen to from sort of like 14 to 24, because that's what you're going to listen to the rest of your life. <laughs> it's interesting you say that we had, I had a teacher in high school, uh, Mr. Roper, who used to play classical music um, whenever we'd have a test. And he, you know, he was, he studied psychology. I think he might've been a psychologist at one point in his life. Um, but he uh, he would say, look, this this music will trigger memories in your brain and it'll help you do better um, on the exam, you know, assuming you were paying attention in class. <laughs> um, but my mother, my mother is going to turn 89 this summer. She you know, wow. has significant memory loss. Mm, um, sorry to hear that. Very long. She's her long term memory is pretty good, um, knows who everybody is, um, but doesn't remember what we're doing, you know, on any given day. Like, well, you know, she'll ask me, what, where are we going to dinner tonight? What do we do this afternoon? Like her short term is shot. But you, mm -hmm. I put her in a car. My father, his favorite, his favorite station on Sirius XM is channel 69, which is escape. And it is basically the Muzak channel. Okay. You know, no lyrics, just melodies and bad ones at that uh, or played badly. And my mother will start singing the lyrics to every song that comes on, even though She's not prompted by lyrics at all because there are none. It's just the melodies that she hears. She knows everything. I mean, she could sit in front of a piano and play from memory. Um, she played growing up. She played when well, she was a virtuoso. I mean, she 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 just played everything by ear. I mean, she knows how to read music, but um, yeah. you, know, you could hum her something and she'd be able to play it and she can still do it. But it's that like music, I think is, and I remember learning this in, in my psych courses. It's like one of the last things to go is like your, yeah. wherever your music memory is stored, it's, it's intact for a long time. It's well, and it's and it and it it draws on a number of different areas uh, of the brain, and it's also very powerfully uh, emotive and emotional. Um, you know, it, it's interesting too. Like, you know, we um, we've all gotten used to this this environment, right? With uh, Zoom, where we, uh, you know, it's it's actually pretty amazing technology, right? We we're having a, a really nice, um, authentic conversation here, and we're hundreds of miles apart. Um, you know, but but there's 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 a lot of information in audio channels, and if you think about music 
you know, with your eyes closed, you're, you're visualizing. So you're using your visual cortex, you're listening. So you're obviously using your auditory cortex. Uh, you're drawing on memories. If you've heard that song before, so you're using your memory centers. You're clearly having these emotional responses uh, that are keeping you engaged and you're, you're paying attention and you're, you're co-creating uh, in, 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 in real time. Um, that's, that's, a, that's, that's a lot of brain power. So I'm not surprised that uh, that's something that is preserved. Yeah. Uh, up next, um, thinking about uh, the book. This is your first book, right? Yes. I'm, I'm sure you're, you're <laughs> My... well published in journals and such. But yeah, um, yeah, yeah. First, first uh, uh, book. So I'm curious, what in what ways, if any, has has writing this book been therapeutic for you? Yeah, it's a, it's a that's a great question. Um, you know, we, we were talking uh, before we got on about you know you don't you don't write books to make money. They're really passion plays, um, and and from a therapy perspective, uh, I really got into the habit and began to crave, you know, having an hour and a half or even two hours, I would get up at four in the morning before everybody else got up. And, and, and what I learned, which is germane to the recommendation of the book is I couldn't look at my phone and I couldn't check email. If I just got coffee and went right to the word processor, right. And, and put my head down, I could have a productive morning. If I literally just picked this thing up and looked at one, you know, one little thing, I would get distracted and, and couldn't, couldn't be productive. So, so that was sort of like a parallel process, right? I'm writing about this thing and I'm having the experience like, wow, like monotasking is real. Um, because, you know, as you know, writing a book requires a tremendous amount of focus. Um, there's a lot of references in this book. So I wanted everything to be, you know, backed by solid science. So I was doing a ton of reading and, and uh, making, you know, going through the world's literature. And I learned another thing, which is, um, I had lost the ability to do deep learning, you know, and it took, it took several months before I could, you know, sit down and read through an entire journal article at a decent pace and, and, and take away the key points. I, I just literally couldn't focus. And I, I talk about this. I don't know if it made it into the final version of the book, but I, had, I wrote about how I was like, I was, I literally got to the point where I was just skimming headlines and maybe reading a couple sentences of an abstract and making pretend I was like keeping up with the literature. Like, who are you kidding? Like, you, you're, not, you're not doing anything. So, yeah, look, I, I'm, uh, I'm fully aware of the irony that I write a book about how we all have shorter attention spans than ever. That requires a long attention span. So, um, so far, I think maybe three people have read the, read the whole thing. <laughs> so I'm gonna have to do a lot of podcasts. There you go. Um, and uh, kind of maybe along those lines, but what, what lessons about publishing do you feel like you learned the hard way? Uh, uh, I learned that publishing is in the last century, um, you know, that uh, while the rest of the world sort of moves forward and adopts uh, new things, um, you know, uh, the, the publishing world, uh, you know, as far as I can tell, uh, continues to, to, you know, use a, an old business model. So, you know, as you know, like, sure, I have a publicist, but she's publicizing 50 books, right? So I've got to do my own my own PR, I'm going to do my own marketing, uh, and 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 all that uh, promotion, uh, which is fine, but it's not, you know, it's it, it's it wasn't in the, the contract, right? <laughs> like, hey, by the way, um, I think the other thing I learned is, um, you know, editing matters. Uh, so I remember the, um, you know, and these are for you know tips for I guess future writers, right? So I, I remember the the agent who was you know like a friend of a friend. Um, you know, came down to Harvard University Press and this other, uh, you know, relatively new press uh, that was offering more money and, and was clearly more savvy and sophisticated. And I said, what do you think? 
she said, you know, you're a first time author, you're trying to write a serious book, I would go with an academic press, you're going to get better, better editing. And at the end, you're going to have a better book. And I didn't really fully appreciate what that meant, because I'd never written a book before, uh, until, you know, we were going through the process. And, you know, the, the senior editor was like, big picture, move this, get rid of that, cut more pages, change this. And then the, 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 the line editor, the copy editor came in. And it was the most amazing experience of my writing career. I mean, he made me a better writer uh, by orders of magnitude. And I learned a lot. I learned a lot about the book because, you know, he, he would pull things forward that I had kind of buried in the background. It's like, no, no, this is really important. And then he would kind of temper things that I thought were super important. And then, and I'd read it a couple of times. And I go, oh, really? And then I was like, oh, actually, you're right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, so I joke, people like, wow, you're a really good writer. I'm like, no, I'm not. I had a really good editor. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Well, the, the, the editors need something to work with, right? They need That's something right. good to work with at first. So, you know, you can attach yourself. I give myself that. a little credit. <laughs> there you go. Uh, two more, uh, and then we can wrap. Um, sure. How, if at all, do you, uh, do you feed your inner child? Uh, that's a great question. I feed my inner child through my children and, and, and through play. And I, I really, uh, I, I made a commitment, you know, that was maybe part of the, the book and maybe part of just me trying to be a good parent that, you know, when I'm with my kids, I'm hundred percent with them. And if I have to work about kids, I got to go work and go close the door. I didn't want them. I didn't want them to get my divided attention. Um, and the more I worked on the book, the more I realized that was probably a good idea. Um, and then, so when I'm with them, I really try to mentalize with them and I really try to see the world through their eyes. And, and what's so great about kids, uh, and everybody knows this, but uh, they, you know, everything's new and their reward centers just light up with, with such, such viv, you know, uh, vividness uh, to all kinds of things that, that we now just kind of take for granted. Um, and, you know, the, the, the problem with the reward system in our brains uh, is that once it gets tuned into something uh, at a high level, whether it's social media likes or video games or compulsive shopping or narcissistic posting, um, it begins to tune out other things, right? And so what we know about addiction, and one of the things I talk a lot about in the book is the difference between habit and addiction, uh, is that it begins to narrow our world. Uh, and that actually creates a, a negative uh, and vicious cycle downward. Um, so I think, you know, children in their perspective can remind all of us that, that there's a lot in the natural world uh, that, that is rewarding, that can be rewarding and, and should be rewarding because that's, that's how we evolved to be where we are. Yeah. And last one, um, uh, if you could give words of advice, if we could Marty McFly here and, and go back in time and, and okay. you could meet your younger self and give him some words of advice, what would you tell uh, a younger Carl Marcy? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, I, I think I would tell a younger me uh, as I kind of navigate midlife um, that don't stop, don't think you know yourself uh, as well as you think you do, because you don't. <laughs> um, and, and, and that, you know, the, the process of discovery, like I'm a curious person, I'm very blessed that I've got a curious brain. So I love to learn new things. I'm enjoying this conversation. You know, I'm going to think about your, your five layers of boundaries and, <laughs> and, and, and being a Napa Valley sober, uh, and thinking about how to be a better you, right. That's fantastic. Right. You're, you're, you're doing the work. Um, you know, but I think that that's how that discovery has to be pointed towards yourself and how we evolve, not only as we age through relationships, but also through technology, which is really, again, to take it back to the book, you know, the book is all about what is our relationship with technology today? Guess what? 
it's, it's a pretty negative view of that. But we're not done, right? I have no doubt that the human brain is resilient enough to navigate through uh, the onslaught of change that's coming. And it's coming and it's gonna accelerate. It's not gonna decelerate. What I hope for is that we can actually do more than survive, that we can actually thrive, right? That we can begin to, as we talked about earlier, use technology in service of our needs, not try to defend against technology who's trying to you know, really take advantage of us in certain ways. That's what I hope for. Very good. Well, I think it's a great one to end on. Uh, the author, of course, is Dr. Carl Marcy. We've been talking about his book, Rewired, Protecting Your Brain in the Digital Age. Uh, Dr. Marcy, uh, do you have a website? Do you have social media you want to share with everybody who uh, may want to look up more information about you? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm working on the website this weekend, but it's going to be uh, rewiredthebook.com. Uh, I'm certainly on, on Amazon. I've got a page there. Uh, and, you know, you can. it's easy to find me on LinkedIn. Uh, so I encourage people to, to take a look at the book and, and reach out with questions. Very good. Uh, Dr. Carl Marcy, fun conversation. Thank you very much for stopping by. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe.